Chapter Four, Part Nineteen of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten. Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Route Trial, Part Nineteen of Twenty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Part 19 Now, gentlemen, I come to a most interesting part of this discussion, and I hope we will live through it. In the first place, what is a conspiracy? Well, in this case, they must establish that it was an agreement entered into between the persons mentioned in this indictment, or two of them, to defraud the government. How? By the means pointed out and described in the indictment. While it may not be absolutely necessary to describe the means, I hold that if they do describe them, tell how the conspiracy was to be accomplished, they are bound by their description. They must prove such a conspiracy as they describe. If a man is indicted for stealing a horse, and the color of the horse is given, it will not do to prove a horse of another color. If they describe the offense, they are bound by the description. Now, this is a conspiracy entered into, as they claim, by the persons mentioned in the indictment to do a certain thing. What is the object of the conspiracy? To defraud the government. And, gentlemen, I believe the court will instruct you that the conspiring is the crime. The object of the conspiracy is to defraud the United States. What are the means? According to this indictment, false petitions, false oaths, false letters, false orders. What I insist on is that the means cannot take the place of the object, that the means cannot take the place of the conspiracy described. When you describe a conspiracy by certain means to defraud the government, and set out the means so that the second assistant postmaster general is a necessity, then you cannot turn and shift your ground and say that it was not the conspiracy set out in the indictment, but that it was a conspiracy to do some of the things recited as means in the indictment. You cannot say that it was not a conspiracy entered into with the second assistant postmaster general, but was a conspiracy entered into with some others to make a false petition or a false affidavit. The ostrich of this prosecution will not be allowed to hide its head under the leaf of an affidavit. They must prove, in my judgment, the conspiracy that they describe in the indictment, and none other. Now, what else? You must be prepared, gentlemen, when you make up a verdict, if you say that there was a conspiracy, to say when it was entered into and who entered into it. And I suppose when you retire, the first question for you to decide will be, was there a conspiracy? Has any conspiracy been established beyond a reasonable doubt? If you say yes, then the next question for you to decide is, who conspired? Who were the members of that conspiracy? After you do that, there is one other thing you have to do. You have to find that one of the conspirators, for the purpose of carrying the conspiracy into effect, did something. That is called an overt act. You have to find that at least one of them did something to affect the object of that conspiracy. You must remember, gentlemen, that the overt act must come after the conspiracy. 
in other words you cannot commit an overt act and make a conspiracy to fit it you must have a conspiracy first and then do an overt act for the purpose of accomplishing the object of that conspiracy the conspiracy must come first and the overt act afterwards you all understand that now now this indictment is so framed that the earliest time within the life of the statute of limitations for an overt act is the twenty-third day of may eighteen seventy nine why the indictment charges that as the day the conspiracy was entered into any overt act in consequence of that conspiracy must have been done after the twenty-third of may eighteen seventy nine now get that into your heads level and square the conspiracy according to this is not back of the twenty-third of may eighteen seventy nine and any overt act done in order to be considered an overt act must be done after the date of that conspiracy if they prove any act done before that time it shows that it was not an overt act belonging to the conspiracy mentioned in the indictment if it is an overt act at all it is an overt act of another conspiracy entered in before the date mentioned in this indictment and consequently will not do for an overt act in this case now i want you all to understand that i forget how many overt acts are charged in this indictment some sixty or seventy i think and understand me now gentlemen no matter what date they fix to an overt act in the indictment no matter whether there is any date to it or not in the indictment if it turns out to have been done before the time fixed for the conspiracy it is dead as an overt act it is good for nothing the overt act is the fruit of the conspiracy the conspiracy is not the result of the overt act now let me make a statement to you so that you will understand it every petition every letter every affidavit upon which orders for expedition were based was filed before the twenty-third of may eighteen seventy nine except on two routes tuckerville to adairville and eugene city to bridge creek if that is true then not a solitary petition filed in this case can be considered as an overt act and a conspiracy without an overt act is nothing it simply exists in the imagination it is an agreement made of words and air and never was vitalized with an act done by one of the conspirators for the purpose of giving it effect recollect that every petition every affidavit every letter filed was filed before the twenty-third day of may with the two exceptions i have mentioned that is the date when the conspiracy came into being and consequently an overt act must be after that time now when they came to write this indictment why did they not tell the truth in it i do not mean that in an offensive sense because a man has the right to write in that indictment what he wants to that is a matter of pleading but why did they not tell the facts why did they put in the indictment that a certain petition was filed on the twenty-sixth day of june when they had the petition before them and knew that it was filed in april eighteen seventy nine why did they put in that indictment that a certain affidavit was filed on the twenty sixth or twenty seventh of may 
i think it was when they knew that it was filed in april or march why because if they had put that in the indictment the indictment would have been squashed so far as their overt acts were concerned the court would have said i cannot allow you to put on paper that a man entered into a conspiracy on the twenty-third of may and then did an act to carry that conspiracy into effect in april before that time i cannot allow you to do that because that is infinitely absurd and pleadings have to be reasonable on their face but you see they stated that this was done after the conspiracy they had to do it or they would be gone i believe there is no dispute about this law that if they describe the overt act and they must describe it because it is part of the offence that is the offence is not complete without it they must prove it exactly as they describe it if they describe it with infinite minuteness they must prove it with infinite minuteness if they set out that an affidavit was written on bark they must produce a bark affidavit if they were foolish enough to say it was written in red ink they must produce it in red ink if they allege that an oath was sworn to twice before two notaries public they must produce an oath sworn to twice they are bound to prove exactly what they charge and if they were too particular about it that is their fault not ours i say that all these with the exception of the two routes i have named were filed too early to play any important part in this case. Now I will come to those routes. Remember that every overt act must be after the conspiracy. There are two exceptions, and those two exceptions include petitions and affidavits. And there is a splendid kind of justice in the way this thing is coming out, so far as that is concerned. The petitions filed on the Tokerville route and on Bridge Creek route, I believe, are genuine. I believe the government admits that they are honest, and they were not attacked except upon one point, and that was that a daily mail did not mean seven times a week. The point made by the government was that a daily mail meant six trips a week, that is, where you have them every day. We took the ground that daily mail meant a mail every day, and that in the Western country, as here, they have seven days in the week. We contended that you cannot have a daily mail without having seven trips a week. I think that was the only point made against these petitions, that they were for a daily mail, and that somebody put in the figure seven no petition for increase of service alone was ever attacked by the government in this case except twenty five l on the dallas route and twenty h and twenty nine h on the canyon city route twenty five l was filed april twenty third eighteen seventy nine that was one month before the conspiracy had life consequently that is mustered out of this case as an overt act 23L was filed June 27, 1879, and is in time, provided it had been a dishonest petition. And it is the only petition filed on the date alleged in the indictment, and it was not attacked. It was signed by the businessman of Baker City, and is set out, I believe, on page 1617. 20H was filed May 7th, 
that is not in time that is gone twenty nine h has no file mark and never was proved so that goes all the allegations as to false petitions for increase of service and by that i mean additional trips are shown to have been genuine honest true petitions there are but two affidavits one correctly described both were made by peck mr bliss admits that peck had nothing to do with any of these routes after april first eighteen seventy nine and both of them were made by peck and were sworn to before that date the affidavit on the tokerville route was filed by m c rodell who swears that he was not in any conspiracy to defraud the united states that he was not in a conspiracy with vale and minor and john w dorsey nor with anybody else it was filed by the subcontractor of record m c rodell and it is the same route on which mr rodell by virtue of his subcontract appropriated about five thousand dollars of money belonging to other people the other exception is on the bridge creek route and strange as it may appear that was also filed by mr rodell and strange as it may appear it has not been successfully impeached as to the men and horses necessary under the existing and proposed schedule the overt act is not proved because the oath is not proved to be false and because peck and rodell according to mr bliss's admission and according to rodell's oath were not in the conspiracy and the overt act has to be done by one of the conspirators of course the court <clears throat> i understood i do not know whether i have been under a delusion all this time or not that the indictment charged that these affidavits and false petitions were the means by which the conspiracy was to be carried into execution that they were not the overt acts if they had been set out as overt acts in the indictment the court would have seen that they antedated the time and if an objection had been made to them the court would not have received them as overt acts the reason why they have been admitted and regarded as in the case all along to my mind was that they were acts tending to prove so far as they tended to prove anything the nature of the combination between these parties anterior to the twenty-third of may mr ingersoll before the conspiracy the court before the conspiracy so that whatever character belonged to that association anterior to that time if it was continued on after that time carried out with overt acts done subsequently to that time they were properly received as evidence going to establish the conspiracy not as overt acts but as means to show the character of the combination amongst the parties anterior to that date mr ingersoll that saves me a great deal of argument <laughs> now i understand gentlemen that the court will instruct you that you cannot take any petition any letter any oath any paper of any kind that was filed or written or used prior to the twenty third of may eighteen seventy nine as an overt act that all that that evidence is for is to show you the relations sustained by the parties before that time the court yes you are right mr ingersoll now that saves a great deal of trouble 
there are on the tokerville and adairville route and on the eugene city and bridge creek route petitions filed after the twenty third of may eighteen seventy nine set out in the indictment as overt acts i shall insist if the court will allow me that if there is no evidence that those petitions were dishonest no evidence going to show that they were not genuine those petitions cannot be used as overt acts for the reason that they are charged in the indictment as false and fraudulent petitions so gentlemen i take that ground that as to the petitions filed after the twenty-third day of may on the only two routes left for these gentlemen to find overt acts upon eugene city to bridge creek and tokerville to adairville if those petitions have not been proved to be false they cannot be regarded as overt acts for the reason that they were described in the indictment itself as false and fraudulent petitions it is perfectly clear is it not what else have we left a couple of affidavits who made them mr peck when before the first day of april eighteen seventy nine and mr bliss admits that from that time on he never had anything to do with this business mr Rudell filed them and mr Rudell swears that he was never in any conspiracy and mr bliss admits that peck after the first of april had nothing to do with this business that substantially knocks the bottom out of that dish now they attacked the affidavit on the bridge creek route but they did not succeed in showing that it was not an honest affidavit now gentlemen after what the court has decided i want to call your attention to another thing do not forget what the court has decided that all these things are not overt acts but that they simply show the relations of the parties now if you go and find vale and minor getting up petitions on their routes and you also find dorsey getting up petitions on his routes then they claim that that is the result of an agreement between them that is not the law neither is there in that the scintilla of common sense if i find you ploughing in your field and your neighbor ploughing in his field i have no right to draw the conclusion that you have conspired to plough or to help each other but if i find your neighbor and you ploughing in your field and i afterward find you and your neighbor ploughing in his field i have the right to conclude that you have swapped work and that you have something in common if i find you ploughing in your field and your neighbor walking behind you sowing grain or dropping corn and then i find you in the fall shucking out the corn together and i find your neighbor taking half of it to his barn and you taking half of it to your barn i make up my mind that you have had some dealings on the corn question now we find that on may fifth eighteen seventy nine these parties absolutely divided and after that when vale and minor got up a petition on their route dorsey did not help them and when dorsey got one up on his vale and minor did not help him that shows what the relations of the parties were does that show that they were then in a conspiracy does it show that they had any conspiracy before that time they had separated their interest they had ceased to act together one did nothing for the other if there had been a conspiracy before that time that conspiracy died on the fifth of may eighteen seventy nine 
and if it did then there is no possibility of any conviction in this case no matter what the evidence is not the slightest now i want you to understand that ground exactly i am not begging the question i am not afraid to meet every point every paper every scratch in this case but i want you to understand it all those things were allowed for the purpose of showing the relations of the parties the relations that the defendants sustained to each other and the evidence is that they sustained no relations to each other after eighteen seventy nine that each went his own road to attend to his own business in his own way that is the evidence now comes the next point what are the overt acts in the indictment really they are the orders made by mr brady unless you take this poor little affidavit made by peck and filed by riddell then comes the next point you cannot treat anything as an overt act unless it was made by one of the conspirators is there any evidence in this case that mr brady ever conspired with anybody not the slightest and unless he conspired with us any other made by him cannot be regarded as an overt act in this case i think everybody will admit that unless brady conspired with us and we with him any order of his cannot be regarded as an overt act i ask you gentlemen what evidence is there in this case that mr brady ever conspired with any of these defendants i will answer that question before i get through and i think i will answer it to your entire satisfaction i will go a step further in this case and i may go a little further than the court will go i say that when they state in that indictment that an order is made for the benefit of minor vale and dorsey and the evidence is that it was made for the benefit only of vale and minor that is a fatal variance and it cannot be treated as an overt act for any conspiracy and when the indictment charges that an order was made for the benefit of s w dorsey and vale and minor and it turns out that it was made for the sole benefit of s w dorsey i claim that that is a fatal variance gentlemen i was going through all these overt acts and all these terrible false claims but the decision of the court has utterly and entirely relieved me from that duty so i will turn my attention to another person the next defendant to whom i may call your attention is mr john w dorsey it is claimed that john w dorsey was one of the original conspirators that he helped to hatch and plot this terrible design let us see what interest john w dorsey had you have heard me read the agreement he made have you not with minor now let me read to you the agreement that he made on the sixteenth day of august eighteen seventy eight now we will find out what interest john w dorsey had in all this conspiracy on the sixteenth of august eighteen seventy eight there was no reason for telling any lie about it they could not get on the routes in august eighteen seventy eight they had not the money and so they took in vale at that time gentlemen there was no reason for their writing anything in this paper that was not true not the slightest and i take it for granted that most people tell the truth when there is no possible object in telling anything else 
if their memory is good. Fourth, the profits accruing from the business shall be divided as follows. From routes in Indian Territory, Kansas, Nebraska, and Dakota, to H. M. Vale, one-third. To John R. Minor, one-sixth. To John M. Peck, one-sixth. And to John W. Dorsey, one-third. From routes in Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, and California. To H. M. Vale, one-third. To John R. Minor, one-third. And to John M. Peck, one-third. Page 40, 14. And to John W. Dorsey, nothing. The entire interest of John W. Dorsey in the whole business was one-third of the profits on routes in the Indian Territory, Kansas, Nebraska, and Dakota. This was signed by H. M. Vale, John R. Minor, John M. Peck, and John W. Dorsey, and I believe these are all admitted to be genuine signatures of the parties. The only routes mentioned in this indictment in which John W. Dorsey on the 16th day of August, 1878, had any interest whatever were Kearney to Kent in Nebraska, Vermilion to Sioux Falls in Dakota, and Bismarck to Tongue River in Dakota. Remember that, gentlemen, that is very important. The evidence is that he sold out his interest in the following December, made a bargain for $10,000, and the evidence is that he received the money and the evidence is that after that he never had any interest in the profits, no matter how much was made. And yet these gentlemen say that he was part and parcel of a conspiracy formed on the 23rd of May, 1879. Long before that time he had sold out every dollar's interest he had, and had no more interest in it than though he had never existed. He got his $10,000, that was all. Now let us see what he did when the routes were divided. Mr. Merrick. When did you say he sold out and got the money? Mr. Ingersoll. The bargain was made in December, and his brother wrote to him at first that Bale would not give it to him, and then that he would. Don't you recollect the two letters you asked Dorsey so much about? It had been agreed to once, and then after S.W. Dorsey came out of the Senate, John W. Dorsey was paid $10,000, and Minor swears that the division was absolute, perfect, and complete, and that nothing was signed by one for the other after the 5th of May, 1879. Mr. Bliss. Minor does not say when. He swore that he signed no papers after the 5th of May, 1879. Mr. Ingersoll. He says that he signed no papers for the other side and that the other side signed none for Vale and Minor. Mr. Davidge, you're talking of two different things. Mr. Ingersoll, I will show you after a while that you were wrong, as I always do. I never made a mistake on you yet. The only routes mentioned in this indictment in which John W. Dorsey, on the 16th day of August, 1878, had any interest whatever, were from Kearney to Kent in Nebraska, Vermilion to Sioux Falls in Dakota, and Bismarck to Tongue River in Dakota. And I will say right here that if at any time I do injustice to Mr. Bliss or anybody else, if it is pointed out, I will take it back cheerfully. And if it is not pointed out, and they show that I did it, I will get up and admit it, 
and say that I was mistaken. Mr. Bliss, you will have a great deal to admit. Mr. Ingersoll, very well, I will do it, for I have the courage of conviction, and I have the courage to say that I am mistaken when I am. Now, the evidence is that John W. Dorsey sold out his interest for $10,000, and that he received the money, and that after that he had no interest in the profits when the three routes were divided, and the only three were the ones I have mentioned. On the first route from Vermilion to Sioux Falls, John W. Dorsey was the subcontractor, and he gave Mr. Vale the entire pay for all increases and all expeditions. John W. Dorsey had the right to subcontract, and Mr. Vale had the right to make the contract. The statement on page 726 shows simply that John W. Dorsey never drew a dollar upon that route. That is one route fairly and squarely disposed of. Understand, I cast no imputation on Mr. Vale for having the contract and for getting the money. When I come to it, I will show you that he had the right to. The next route is from Kearney to Kent. John W. Dorsey had an interest in that route, according to the agreement of August 16th, of one-third. You will see from page 726 of the record that the first quarter John M. Peck got the money, $245.06. John W. Dorsey was entitled to one-third of that, if it was profit. The next quarter was paid on the 22nd of January, 1879, that is, for the fourth quarter of 1878, and that was paid to H. M. Vale, and never another solitary cent was paid to anybody in such a way that John W. Dorsey was entitled to any part or portion of it. That gets that route out of trouble, so far as John W. Dorsey was concerned, no matter what the increase may have been after that, no matter what the expedition was, no matter whether French carried it for nothing, no matter what happened to Cedarville or that city of Fitzsalon. It was no interest to John W. Dorsey, no matter whether the road ran direct from Fitzsalon to Cedarville or not. He was entitled to one-third of the profits on one payment to Peck, and that payment was $245.06. Whether he ever got it, I do not know. Let us see how he came out on the next route, from Bismarck to Tongue River. He went out there to build stations. I will come to that in a little while. Now I call attention to page 727. The third quarter, from July 1st to September 30th, 1878, was paid November 8th, 1878, to H. M. Vale. Never a solitary dollar on the route was paid to John W. Dorsey, according to this record, if you can rely on these books. This ends Chapter 4, Part 19.